Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for downloading, streaming, or however you are accessing this. I'm fortunate enough to be working as an oceanographer right now, and uh, I love the community that I get to participate in and be a part of. This podcast is my way to celebrate climate science and the scientists who get up and do the work every day. It's also my excuse to talk with my colleagues, to get a broad view from them of their science and their lives. It's late. I'm recording this late on a Saturday night. Um, I normally don't wait this late to record, uh, but that's just how the summer holidays work. Uh, so if you, if I sound a bit more tired than usual, that's what's going on. I was really glad to have Dr. Scott Hosking on the show. Scott is a climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey. That's where we met. His research involves uh, these days using a lot of machine learning techniques on large data sets like the output from global climate models and observational data as well. Uh, so he looks at large-scale climate variability projections into the future. And uh, I really enjoyed our, our chat. I appreciate Scott's time. I wanted to mention uh, he's on Twitter at Scott Hosking, you can follow him there. And we talked briefly about this paper that came out a few months ago where, um, along with his co-authors, Scott identified that uh, this kind of surprising result that the UK and other parts of Northern Europe, they could become windier if global temperatures reach 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. And that's not necessarily the surprising part, but the surprising part is that could lead to uh, more wind energy, a 10% increase in UK onshore wind energy generation, uh, which could power an extra 700,000 homes. Yeah, so that's interesting and kind of surprising. It uh, obviously doesn't mean that we should be racing towards 1.5 degree see above pre-industrial for the extra 10% increase in wind energy. There will be lots of other uh, negative impacts, which will certainly weigh out the uh, potential gain in wind energy. Uh, yeah, so we talk a bit about that paper um, and uh, about how he you know, arrived at this conclusion and some of the future work that he wants to do. And you can find that in uh, environmental research letters from the 17 May issue in 2018. I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about this article that appeared in The Psychologist in the September 2018 issue by Cameron Brick and Sander Vanderlinden. So Cameron has been on this program before. Uh, he recorded a podcast with me a couple of months ago, and if you haven't listened to that one, I'd really recommend it. It's pretty different from the other episodes, and uh, you get the perspective of a social psychologist who's specifically thinks about climate and climate change and how to, uh, not just how to communicate that, but some of the psychological factors that, um, you know, we are kind of uh, up against, this is maybe the wrong word, but some of the psychological factors that we need to really wrap our heads around uh, in order to fully address climate change as, as a physical problem and as a social kind of problem. The title of the article is uh, Yawning at the Apocalypse, and it's really concise, it's jargon minimal, it's very readable, and it's basically an article about how social psychology can help humanity address climate change. Um, and I, I'm really starting to think that this is probably one of the most crucial parts of addressing climate change. 
because uh, you know so much of the problem is tied up with uh, what are people going to do? What are individual humans going to do? What are societies going to do in response to our knowledge that adding CO2 to the atmosphere puts more energy down here at the surface and fundamentally disturbs the climate system that we all rely on? I just wanted to read a little bit of the article to you, actually. Um, I'll just read you a short, short section, and uh, you can go look up the rest. Uh, I'm just starting kind of randomly, not randomly, I'm starting in the middle, uh, roughly, where they are outlining some of the possible problems that, uh, that, that we run into when we consider bringing the physical science of climate change to the broader public. They go on to say, uh, well, perhaps one problem is that it's hard to care about invisible gases. In the absence of a clear potential villain, there's nobody to blame except ourselves, and this can trigger a range of defensive biases. Moral feelings evolved to respond to agentic imminent threats. Agentic, I think that's the first time I've seen that word. I guess that means, you know, having an agent. You know, our, our moral feelings, I guess, uh, they're saying, evolved to respond to and you, you, some, somebody or something you can point to. There they are. There's the problem. Climate change is a statistical abstraction, and this makes it very difficult to activate the cognitive architecture that evolved moral feelings to thwart threats. This is important because many theories of pro-social conduct conceptualize moral norms and perceived moral responsibility as a key driver of human cooperation and pro-social behavior. That's a nice, uh, nice psychological language in there, and it's uh, you can really sink your, your teeth into some of those those terms. Uh, so, uh, and they go on to make some, uh, actually, some specific kind of practical recommendations about you know what to do. Uh, they call it establishing a moral imperative. How do you establish a moral imperative and make climate change kind of a moral issue? Uh, can you can you bring it to the table in that way? And their first recommendation is that that you frame communications around the specific values of the audience. And this is something that uh, Catherine Hayhoe, uh, for example, has been putting into practice. You know, she uh, has become uh, very, very skilled at identifying the values of a specific audience like the you know, evangelical community in the United States uh, and addressing some of those values. Uh, so Brick and um, Vanderlinden go on to say, uh, for example, environmental messages could focus less on harm to nature, think polar bears, which appeals primarily to liberals, and more on community cohesion, enhancing national security, and preserving nature, which appeal more to conservatives. That's the first bit of practical advice. So yeah, identifying the specific values of that audience, um, as opposed to just picking a message that resonates with you and assuming that that same message or that same focus is going to uh, resonate with everybody in the same way. So advice uh, bit number two, highlight the villains. Uh, an example of the systematic suppression of evidence and public deception by groups like ExxonMobil, as discussed by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway in their 2010 book Merchants of Doubt. Heroes and villains are powerful tools to capture human imagination. Climate change has both. Now, a few years ago, I, I would have hesitated to say something like, hey, let's highlight the villains, but uh, 
I don't know. I don't know that uh, uh, the Merchants of Doubt book, Arescus and Conway. It's got so much uh, evidence. <laughs> it's got. It's, got uh, it's very well documented. Very well written. It's hard to read. It's it's dark, um, but it's definitely very compelling. So I'll let you read the rest of that article. I'll let you read as if you need my permission. That's bizarre. Um, but uh, that's a very very nice article. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, so without any further kind of rambling on for me, why don't we go ahead and get into the my conversation with Scott Hosking. We're still on a two-week schedule, so you, you can expect these podcasts to come out you know, once every two weeks, and I'll try to give a heads up if it looks like I'm going to miss uh, one of those release dates or if I need to change things around a bit. But uh, so far for the foreseeable future, I seem to be on that two-week schedule. Um, yeah, you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod, and please feel free to send me suggestions, you know, questions, concerns, feedback, good, bad, or ugly, or otherwise, to uh, that Twitter account. And uh, you can follow me at Dan Jones Ocean, and uh, same thing there if you want to send any feedback about the podcast, things you would like to to hear, things you would like to know, uh, please let me know, and I'll do my best to try to address them. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Scott Hosking. Yeah. Hey, How are you? I'm okay. Good. I forget if you've ever been in here or not. I can't remember. I think a couple of times. Just yeah. Ask. Yeah. Just to kind of questions. But pass through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. It's uh, nice that it's not so hot anymore, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. so much better. A little bit of a relief, yeah. Yeah, my productivity's shot up this week with yeah. the cooler temperatures. Cause you can like function and think, and <laughs> you know, instead of just sitting there like a blob and feeling like you're gonna melt. I've got the window open. Let me know if it's too hot in here. I mean, it's, it's yeah. yeah, it's all right. Yeah, the yeah temperatures are okay. Yeah, yeah, because it um, because this room, you know, it gets a lot of sunlight during the day yeah of course okay. then, uh, it's kind of nice in the winter but you know in the summer it can warm up a little bit too much um, yeah so thanks for doing this I'm glad you're that's all right. I'm glad you're here yeah <laughs> I'm looking forward to it it's been a little while since I've recorded one of these so I feel like maybe I'm going to be a little rusty potentially okay but you just kind of start talking and you roll into it and then you know that it's kind of nice because neither one of us really knows when it starts you know you just yeah. like you talk and then at some point you can you know, drop into it and it's totally yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, so it's been a while since we caught up. Like, how's your summer going? Good. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's gone so quickly. So, and, um, I, I had the expectation that August would be my quiet month yeah. and there's always things that come up and I guess suddenly everyone thinks, oh, August is quiet. Let's arrange a meeting then. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's been filling up. Which has to be hard for the folks who have uh, kids in school because their kids are out of school. You know, yeah, August, exactly. So that month is actually not very good for, for no, them. No, no, exactly. I mean, we're lucky at the moment. Our daughters are at the nursery all year round, so um, that's going to have to change in the next couple yeah. of years. So. Um, but I think the only way to do it is just to book holiday well in advance and then you know to say no to meetings and yeah oh yeah yeah you put that time on the calendar you block it off and yeah. say nope that's mine nobody can have this exactly so you have to stay very protective of that yeah and I, every year i tell myself i should have done that but i i think oh august is quiet i'll find two weeks near the time mm. never works and it doesn't work yeah. yeah it only works if you like kind of aggressively defend your spots in the Shit. calendar like no that's my day yeah nobody else gets this day <laughs> <laughs> i kind of did that um a few weeks ago just before uh, alex's school started 
uh, sorry, before Alex got out of school for holiday, like I had two days that I took off and I just, I just went into Cambridge and I like, went to museums and stuff yeah, yeah, and like yeah. read the plaques, and, you know, yeah. like, which is not <laughs> normally a thing you get to do if you're like yeah, there yeah. with your, your family, like with a young, young kid, like you don't have time to read the little yeah. plaques and things next to it. So it was really a treat to get to, <laughs> to go do that. <laughs> and I could just, you know, go to bookstores and coffee shops and stuff. Oh, and I, I love it. Um, I really enjoy having meetings in town for that because I could just, um, have a meeting in town, meet someone in a department, and then just go for a coffee for yeah. an hour, read a paper, or even catch up on emails, but it just feels like you're yeah. giving yourself a bit of time. We're super privileged in that way, because Cambridge is a very nice city yeah. for that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just wandering around and going into bookstores and yeah. you know, getting a coffee here and there. Um, how's your daughter liking nursery? Does she, she loves it. Okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely loves it. Um, she runs in, doesn't look back. Um, there was a while <laughs> where she might turn around and... Um, be a little sad, but no, no she loves it. Bye, see you. <laughs> Cheers, bye. Like, oh, you're not going to miss me like, yeah, I'm, a little bit? I'm now the one with a tear in my eye. Come on. Yeah, it's, um, it, uh, yeah, my son had a, a rough introduction to nursery. Like, it was a difficult transition for him, but then once he got into it, he really started loving it and really, like, we found that he needed to make a bond with like another adult he needed to have like a trusted yeah, adult there yeah. a lot of people kind of think it's about oh well they'll have friends there and other kid friends there but actually that wasn't the thing for him he needed to feel like he trusted the adults and, yeah. and uh, it took him a while to get to know them and to get to feel like okay I'm safe here they'll they'll look after yeah, me it is so important um, yeah so how long have you been at Bass I mean you don't have to um, <laughs> in number of days, in weeks, <laughs> days, minutes, please. <laughs> a minute, okay, um, give me a minute. Um, I I started in late two thousand nine. Yeah. So yeah, I've been here for nearly nine years. Okay. Um, yeah. It's flown by. That's that's crazy. That's great. That's really a nice long period of stability. I think um, you know it's uh, often in academics you end up bouncing around so much. And yeah. It's kind of really. You, I mean, even the folks with longer-term jobs, you know, you never really know, right? I mean, an opportunity could pop up here or there, or something could change where you work, and, you know, it's... Exactly. Stability is an illusion, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is. Like, I've it been is. trying to embrace that lately, like, to really <laughs> embrace the, like, no, no, don't get, don't get comfortable. Don't, get, no, 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 exactly. As soon as you get comfortable, that's it. You always, yeah, keep an eye out. Um, when I said to myself, so I've, I did my... PhD here is around Cambridge, so I've been quite lucky that I haven't had to move mm, yeah. since leaving um, my undergrad. And I always said to myself, I cannot stay in Cambridge forever. It's lovely, but you've got to move mm. around and it's not right. And uh, I thought, right, when I'm 30, I'll reassess things, see if I, uh, maybe I should move on. Maybe academia won't be for me. Yeah. And, and I just kept pushing it on. I said, okay, I'll give it another year. Another year. And I, I, re I just love it. I enjoy it. And Bass is such a fantastic place to work. There's so much going on here. You can never get bored in a place like this. Yeah, that's right. No, and I, I think that's part of, you know, when I said stability is, is an illusion, that's very true. And it, it's a funny uh, balance to, like, to appreciate what you have now, which is what, you know, it sounds like you're doing while recognizing that it, it could change. To, yeah. not, to not get too clingy, to realize that, like, okay, but this might be different, you know, yeah. in a year or two years or something, yeah. then I might have to, you know, make a change. And I've been trying to navigate my way into that. <laughs> that I think that's the emotional space I want to be in, where I'm like, can appreciate where I am and what I'm doing. And I don't mean, just mean that for work, I mean like for everything. Yeah. But then like, 
uh, to not be so clingy and to kind of realize that like it might change and it might need to change and, and yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. you just never know in the funding landscape any this anything could change at any point yeah um, exactly so the um so you said you did your undergrad in Cambridge here? No, I didn't do my undergrad. So I did my undergraduate in North Wales at Bangor University. Okay. Yeah. I did a four year uh, masters in chemistry and MChem. And that was also at Bangor. That was in Bangor. So that was that. It was a four year integrated masters. So okay, when I right. left home, I moved to Bangor. Um, yeah, I did my four year to be there. How was and that? then that was great. So uh, it's like you've got the sea, you've got Snowdonia, you've got the mountains, you, yeah. it's incredible. I mean, then I, from, compared to the, you know, the uh, flat landscape we've got out of the window here, it's yeah. incredible. Maybe um, it was you that told me that like in North Wales, that there really are places where there's a large, like majority of people are speaking Welsh, yeah. and if you walk into a pub speaking English, everyone will turn around and go, oh, what's, what's, what's <laughs> yeah. going on here? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the small villages in the Isle of Anglesey, just across, um, from Bangor, they yeah, you walk in somewhere and they'll start speaking Welsh to you, yeah. and they're friendly. They you know they'll if they realise they'll they'll move to English, but it's that's that's how it is, and it's it's fantastic. It means you know they haven't lost that yeah. tradition or that heritage. Hey, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing that like this language has existed you know, for a long time on this small, relatively small yeah. island. It's just been a pocket of a, a language absolutely. that has survived yeah. over. And I guess Cornwall also. Not as much, but they they had a language that is maybe kind of dwindling. But yeah, that Pe- people speak Cornish as say, a hobby. Oh, no, right. it's not something. It's not a fair, I mean, there, there will be. There, you know, you'll find the anomaly. But um, I have never met someone who speaks Cornish right. as their first language or even that regularly. Um, but which again is quite sad because it's it's part of who we are as a Cornishman and Cornwall, but... Um, is that where you're from? There yeah, yeah, I'm originally oh, okay. from Cornwall. Um, that was a coincidence. Oh, okay, sorry, I assumed you realised that. No, that's a total Maybe it's my Cornish, my, my accent, but no. Um, I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I've been here a few years, but I'm still not quite that good at, like, oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a this kind of accent. Like, I can do that a little bit, but... Yeah. Yeah, I'd be told I've lost it a little bit, but yeah, maybe mm-hmm. when I hear this back, I'll, uh, I'll reassess that. Maybe it will that. be there, huh? So that was where you, you grew up, was that like your whole childhood and life? Was yeah, it was, yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, we had a uh, brief spell in Devon um, when my father went to university, but um, yeah, be, I grew up in Cornwall. And that's not too far away, right? That's still on the peninsula no, out there. Exactly, you know? yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's um yeah. So what was that like? I guess did you have easy access to the beach and yeah oh um, yeah, yeah I mean yeah. The, I could see the beach and something like Michael's Mount um right out my bedroom window. Um, mm. Summers were gorgeous. Mild winters we didn't have snow. Mild winters uh, yeah didn't have snow and these you know the summers were warm but you it was always regulated by the sea. We on the peninsula we were surrounded by the sea. Did you get a lot of storms coming in off the yeah. Atlantic. Oh yeah, yeah, it rained a, a yeah. lot. A lot yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we have palm trees down there. It's, it's green. It's it's gorgeous. That's what I've heard. Yeah, an, an old professor of mine took a vacation in the UK, and he mm. posted some pictures of you know palm trees and kind of tropical and subtropical plants yeah. growing in in Cornwall, on yeah. the peninsula there. Um, yeah, it seems like that's a really unique kind of. You don't have whales to there to you know uh, absorb all of the 
in Ireland to absorb all of the storms yeah. coming off yeah, exactly. the Atlantic, so they just plow right into yeah, you. Yeah, and yeah. it's lucky, you know, so much of it's made of granite, it just would, it would have washed away yeah. <laughs> by now. Is it a small, was it a small town where you grew up? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they're all small towns, even what we call cities are tiny. Um, so um, when I moved to Bangor, which is, most people would call it a town or very small, it was the biggest place. I've ever been. It's, it was a city. It had a cathedral, a university. The biggest, so place, it was, it was the biggest place I'd ever lived. Lived, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. And and, um, and again, moving to Cambridge, again, people feel Cambridge is quite small by <laughs> maybe US standards or um, but other, other places in Europe. But for me, um, it, it was it's like a mega city. It was huge. Multiple Starbucks. I mean, why, yes. why do you need more than one? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, uh, it's a good size. I don't know. Cambridge is a good size for me, and I think it's maybe less about the size and about the activity level. Because you know, if you yeah. you could, th- there are plenty of giant cities in the U.S. where like, um, the city centers are kind of dead. There's not really that much going on. Like in the, you know, where you would think of as the center of the city. You know, there's kind of yeah. not that much going going on necessarily. Like people will drive in and go to work, and then drive yeah, out okay. to the suburbs, and so that. Um, so I, I like this. I like this kind of style of, of a city where you can actually walk around and there's stuff going on and you can pop yeah. into different places. So that's very that's very nice. And so what what do your uh, folks do? My folks, um, my uh, so I'm from a um, dairy farming yeah. background. Well, uh-huh. my my father, my grandfather, uh-huh. and his father. Um, so yeah, we we grew up um, on a farm or very near the farm. Mm, um, okay. And that's that's pretty much been. Did, um, you, did you get involved with that? No, all? I didn't. No, no, and it was never sort of the intention of my parents for me to get involved. It's they they knew from back then that um, things were getting harder. There was um, there was less future right. in the area, so there's always there's always the yeah. encouragement there to um, to look beyond. Don't farming. do what we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Don't, don't do this. <laughs> this isn't working out anymore. Don't do this. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. So, so, that, so obviously the natural choice, if, if not dairy farming, then climate science. Yeah, yeah, yeah of that's course. The natural, that's the natural <laughs> yeah. alternative. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, yeah, dairy farming or climate science, or you can be a tour guide would be the next yeah. logical yeah. In, in that progression, or firefighter, I would think. <laughs> um, uh, so the... Oh, my brain just stopped. Sorry about that. Um, so you said that they didn't... Yeah, they, they weren't pushing you into farming, for sure. So they were kind of giving you some signals or encouragement in some way to like, well, maybe look, keep, keep yeah. a bright, broader perspective, you know, look outside of... I guess I, whenever I um, would be, say, revising for exams or was interested in something, they, they would let me get on with that and there was never any pressure to be out milking the cows or mm. ploughing a field, and which I guess the previous generations would have had. So you, they always had that... Um, that conflict where they could be revising or they could be doing something academic, but they always mm-hmm. had jobs to do, and I, I had the freedom and the, the privilege to spend as much time as I needed on my studies yeah. and or, and play, and all kids need to play and have fun, and I had the opportunity to do all those things, so I was very lucky in that respect. Yeah, yeah, well, like that you said kids need to play. It's like important work for them, you know, that's how they learn, oh, yeah, that's exactly. how they like, just play around with stuff and explore, and that's, that's exactly. how you build your brain. Go on adventures and, yeah, build a mud pie in the garden. Yeah, absolutely. So what started, um, you know, when, 
What, what did you study at Bangor? I guess I'm trying to figure out I, kind of thread there. Yeah, like, so I did you said um, chemistry. chemistry. Right. Yeah, that's right. I, so I, did a, I did a master's in chemistry. I was interested in environmental chemistry and yeah. the chemistry of, say, the, the soil, the atmosphere. Mm. What do you think started ocean. to pull you in that direction? Not that I'm like, you don't have to have like, no, a great no, story or something, but I just wonder if you see I, any like, precursors. It, to... was, it was a nice, it was a good mix of maths and science. I could visualize things. I enjoyed thinking of. Um, say molecules in three dimensions. I, I remember when uh, one day our chemistry teacher started drawing, I don't know, it was methane or something on the board, yeah. you know, and, and rather than carbon with use for these four hydrogen bonds, suddenly we thought, well, actually, in reality, they, they have this 3D structure, yeah. it's a tetrahedron shape. And I thought, well, uh, of course. And then, you know, suddenly that clicked in my mind. Well, yeah. Um, um, that in, in reality, that's, that's how things... And I, and I, I enjoyed thinking of things in 3D and picturing things. We had no VR headsets back in the day, so you know, everything had to do in your mind. And I enjoyed yeah. picturing Are these things, things coming together. And we had <laughs> models, I guess. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so something about that activity, you know, you've, your brain clicked on and your brain was like, hey, I can do this sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> like you could only yeah. picture it um, and you had no still so many unknowns in there. But I guess um, I enjoyed environmental chemistry because I think the ozone hole and being in the news when I grew up I was oh, born yeah. in the early 80s and that's exactly when all you know the ozone hole was kicking mm-hmm. off um, all the news stories so you know these the the graphic that we've all seen of um, the big hole in the ozone there and thinking this was caused by a few chemicals uh, a few compounds yeah. released by humans and that really caught my imagination um, and then the impacts stratospheric ozone has had on surface climate and more ultraviolet radiation coming in hitting our surface what that means for humans for their skin for plants yeah. um all caused by um cfc's by something we thought were completely harmless you can see the whole chain from you know these molecules that you could picture and visualize to you know impacts on real people yeah. and you could you know you could see you could visualize and map out that whole pathway in your head yeah, yeah. and something about that you know, you responded to that in some way. And Absolutely, and it's it's always stuck with me. You know, this this small microscopic chemical and this global um, phenomenon, this 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 effect it has had on the world. Yeah, and it's absolutely. what's strange now is uh, I moved so I moved to Bass in two thousand and nine, and I was sat next door to John Shanklin, who discovered <laughs> the ozone hole. That's one. That's great. That's one. <laughs> and I have you know I have. I have lunch with him. I, had, yeah. uh, I, I popped in this morning to say hi. Oh, that's, that's really that nice. never, um, I never get used to that every morning. I think this is crazy. <laughs> this is the guy that actually discovered it. That is one of the privileges of living in Cambridge. That's another one that I've really uh, appreciated. Is like, you know, there are there are really well known scientists, you know, here all over town, and you get a real sense, or you're reminded of like. Yeah, they're just people. Like it's just, yeah. it's just humans. Don't you know? Don't put people up on a pedestal too much. Yeah, don't exactly. you know? It's just we're we're just we're humans doing our thing, and yeah. some of us happen to discover holes in the ozone layer. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not p- putting down. No, you know, no, of course not. No, no, but thing. that's but uh, but I guess I, I, I want to uh, I want to emphasize the fact that like in principle anybody can participate in these things yeah. and can can do a kind of you know, version of scientific discovery. Maybe not 
not everybody has access to that same scale, but I feel like everybody yeah. can do that kind of... Absolutely. That, and maybe not even with the physical Earth system. I just mean scientific thinking. Like, yeah. it's, it's accessible. It should be accessible to everyone. It's something everybody can do Absolutely. and participate in. Yeah. And so meeting great scientists and spending time with them, I think just helps you keep that perspective because you're like, oh, they did something really amazing, but don't forget, they're just a person... Yeah. They, they get up, they put the clothes on, they're probably grumpy when they first wake up. Exactly, like, yeah. They like, cycled you know. in that morning like I did. And yeah. Then, you know, they, they exactly. It's, they, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, um, okay, so that, uh, uh, that's a nice uh, bit of symmetry there, isn't it? Yeah, meeting the person who discovered the, the ozone hole, or um, was certainly involved in that. I wonder if he would do this this podcast. I feel like maybe I should ask him. Yeah, I think so. Here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually thinking on the way of it. Um, there are so many good people around the building that have an interesting story to tell that I've heard over lunch yeah. um, or something, so absolutely. For sure. So, okay, so Bangor Chemistry did a master's there, Yeah. and then what was the next step from there? Then I moved to Cambridge, so I moved to Cambridge in 2005 to do my PhD yeah. in atmospheric chemistry, again with um, in a group that was um, key to understanding the mechanisms that... Um, that produced the ozone hole, so John Pyle's group. Yeah. He's now head of department in chemistry. So I joined his group. Um, it's, it's fantastic. You know, they, they, they were still using the models and developing the models they used um, 25, 30 years ago um, right. they were to, to understand um, how the ozone hole came about. Um, and it's still a very key issue today. And how is the ozone going to change in the future? Um, it's a key part of understanding future climate change mm -hmm. so there's still some big questions there and especially as we're what are some of those like what's the you know what do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of current state of the ozone hole and that science yeah. and <clears throat> so we we believe the ozone um, hole um, is starting to stabilize and we've uh, the Montreal protocol we have um, we had limiting and st uh, almost stopped pretty much stopped um emitting these um, ozone-depleting species into the atmosphere. And our models um, indicated that we would see um, that the ozone hole would lessen and it would over time recover, and that's what we think we're seeing now. But we are, um, it's, it's such a noisy signal from mm. year to year. You yep. need um, a good number of years to, to, to see that that is the case. And we, more and more evidence is showing now that we are recovering and that we're on the, yeah, we're on the way to... To back to where it should be, to what we call pre-industrial right. ozone levels. And that um, really can have a um, large effect on our future climate projections. So the ozone hole is, um, has been important for driving winds near the surface around Antarctica, and that's had its own effect on the climate over Antarctica. So if we are suddenly removing that feature, we're, we're going back to, say, these uh, yeah. a, a reduced... Um, reduce wind speeds, mm -hmm. um, say driven by the ozone hole. But then we've got greenhouse gases coming in, which sort of muddies the waters a bit. So these two competing uh, factors really do make um, climate prediction around Antarctica uh, very challenging. Yeah, that's right. So ozone depletion can lead to faster winds at the surface, Yeah, you know, around the Southern Ocean especially, that uh, something about when you change the, get rid of the ozone, you change the way that radiation is, you know, absorbed and distributed throughout the atmosphere, and that changes 
big scale pressure gradients, That's which it, then yeah. changes the wind stress around Antarctica, which then changes what's happening at the surface of the Southern Ocean. Yeah. And then for a long time in oceanography, there's been a, a lot of discussion about how the you know, ocean is going to respond to that, um, particularly like in a transient mode, because you know that signal, the ozone signal is changing over time. So you want to talk about not just a steady state, because the Southern Ocean might not have time to get into a steady state in response to these changes in the atmosphere. You want to talk about, you know, how is it going to slowly drift? How are all the density surfaces and upwelling and downwelling and uh, things like that going to respond? So I was just saying that to kind of relate it to the part of the physical picture that I was really familiar with and to kind of paint another picture of like, well, you mentioned these, you know, chains, you know, in climate science, we have these chains of uh, nothing is decoupled from anything no. else. Everything affects everything else constantly Absolutely. across many different spatial and time yeah. scale. And it's really hard to pull all that, that apart. Um, yeah, so the, um, but I kind of interrupted you. So the, about when, I'm, I'm trying to remember when, you know, it's kind of forecast, that is if, I guess, emissions stay, uh, if nobody starts emitting, you know, uh, CFCs again, then yeah. When is it expected to kind of recover? I mean, it's a long, slow process, but I feel like I saw, you know, kind of 2040, 2060, that kind of time yeah, scale along yeah. to the 2080, the, several decades still. So the different climate models will have slightly different um, ozone recovery dates, but around 20, 2060, but yeah, that could be plus or minus 10, 20 years. There's a huge yeah. range there. So there's a lot to be done, and I think, um, you know, there's... There's efforts now. I have a PhD student working at Lancaster University, uh, looking at exactly this. How can we, um, m how can we look at the climate models and more intelligently combine the different outcomes together yeah. to um, pin down that ozone recovery date, um, or at least not not pin it down to a, a year, but to reduce that range because plus or minus that twenty years is. Huge. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Yeah, I, I definitely. I want to talk about that some more. I, I was kind of curious though about, um, and I've got I've got it written down. <laughs> this isn't a list of stuff we have to do. This is yeah. just I was just organizing my thoughts a little bit. Um, so the, what did you do for your dissertation work? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Cambridge. Yeah, in my PhD. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, it's not a dissertation. It's, it's a thesis. thesis. Yes, no, that's fine. No, I've been I... here five years. I still. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I what did I do? Um, so yeah, related to the ozone hull, I was looking at how convective thunderstorms could lift up ozone depleting species from mm. the marine boundary layer oh, right, okay. um, up into the stratosphere. Yeah, and one issue we have with climate models, which have a fairly coarse grid, is that we're not able to represent these small scale uh, thunderstorms or these mm. um, highly convective events so we don't have this rapid uplift in the climate mold but if we don't have that and in reality it's important that we um, inject these ozone depleting species into the stratosphere in order to be able to represent stratospheric ozone depletion then it's I was just trying to um, understand that missing component I guess of the climate models and yeah. see if there's ways we can um, better um, represent that in models and better yeah. parameterize it. I guess. It's a process that happens on scales that are so small that they aren't represented in the full climate model. Absolutely. And not, so we yeah. have to come up with a clever mathematical way to represent, well, here's the effect of those subgrid scale processes, as they're called, you know, on the larger scale kind of climate features. Yeah. And it's really, 
it's sort of an analogous to the just turbulence problem in general, right? It's yeah. like there's turbulence across all scales, and every scale is potentially important. Yeah. And yet exactly. you, you, you know, in terms of if you want to write down a finite set of equations to represent the you know, the physical system, you got to stop somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> a discrete yeah, yeah. set of equations, you have to stop somewhere. You have to stop somewhere. There's always going to be stuff going on at the subgrid scales, which might be important. Yeah. yeah. And so that. And I was so I was um, running in. 2005-6 high-resolution models, global models. These were models, um, say, with a 60-kilometer grid box. Yeah. And today they are called standard, standard resolution. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's great that things are moving on, and we are running now global models, super high resolution of uh, say four, five kilometers. Um, and you do need to get then to those scales, preferably slightly higher, to start picking out those convective events. So with that, um, dissert, with that thes- dissertation, with that thesis work, um, do you have like a takeaway or a bullet, a bullet point or two that you like to, um, to share when you talk? Maybe it's, I'm sure it's been a while since you've yeah, talked about it. Yeah, it's been a while. It, the, the region that um, was clearly the most important for this was the what they call the maritime continent around sort of Southeast Asia, um, the islands in the um, West Pacific. Because we have all these islands and we have a lot of warm water, so we produce a lot of the um, the species, the chemicals, yeah. uh, the, so uh, bromine, brominated compounds, and these um, similar to chlorine. Bromine comes out of warm water. <laughs> comes out of uh, different yeah, seaweeds and yeah. Uh, oh, and, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll have to. So there's a biological. Biological, component component to it, yeah. not, okay. but you know, the different biological, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's okay. I don't it's know okay. exactly what it is now, no, but um, yeah. So these brominated compounds, if they are co-located with these thunderstorms, you get this rapid sort of uh, uplift right. in the stratosphere. So, oh, and it was cool. the it's the one place on the planet where you have these really deep um, events, these convective events, and you get this this large source um, yeah. in these brominated compounds. And bromine is far more reactive. Uh, to ozone, to, uh, to destroying ozone, say compared to chlorine. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. So yes, yeah. we are emitting CFCs, uh, which contain chlorine, but actually, um, understanding bromine is a could be a big part of that. Underst- is critical to understanding future ozone. Is bromine mostly natural? Or is there are there any emissions? Uh, there are um, some anthropogenic emissions, but a huge portion of bromine emissions is natural. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you I get these... about fifty-fifty. If my mind serves me correctly. Oh. So you get powerful thunderstorms that inject these um, ozone-destroying chemicals yeah. into the stratosphere, yeah. and they are in the same place as a bromine source, biological you know, yeah. bromine Bio- source. Yeah. You know. um, it's okay, we can be hand-wavy about the biology, that's <laughs> Good. fine. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, no, that's really interesting, I hadn't yeah. thought about that before. It. Um, and then they're trans- transported from the tropical stratosphere to the polar stratosphere, and that's right. where the magic happens with the, uh, the heterogeneous chemistry which destroys the ozone. Yeah. So you need those polar stratospheric cloud particles, the ice particles, because the, the reactions, the ozone depletion takes place on on those particles. Yeah, you need the they're like Catalyst. nucleation sites, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You say they, they, and they catalyze the reaction that destroys the ozone. And without those, basically, it doesn't really that reaction doesn't really happen it, that much. Or? It's so much faster on these on these ice particles, um, and it's not just water ice, but 
yeah, um, nitric acid, I believe, and others. So it's, it, it, that's where that's where it happens. That's why we see the ozone hole there. That's why it's so confined. Yeah, and also over Antarctica because the stratospheric um, sort of polar vortex is so much colder than the Arctic, for instance. Yeah, and that's why there's a difference between the, the two Antarctic points. and Arctic. Yeah, ozone exactly. Hole. Yeah, yeah. Now that's that's a fascinating story, right? It's an, just another example of everything being connected to everything else. Yeah, exactly. In every possible way. So then, uh, when you were finished at Cambridge, you came over here to to Bath. I did, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was running the UK Met Office model, um, the unified model, uh, as part of my PhD, and a position came up exactly the right time uh, hmm. to to at Bath um, running the same model. Uh, but looking now at um, polar climate variability. Right, okay. So that's what I started doing for the first four or five years here. Mm. Uh, I was doing that, I was running models, I was running models at much higher resolution as well. Yeah. Um, so there was some serendipity there, you know, just the right opportunity came up yeah, at the right time. It did. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's important to recognize that, right? There, like we, you know, I mean, you're you're a hardworking person, and you're always you know going for it, and you're always attacking it. But those, the timing part is really critical. Absolutely, like you do need the right things to come along at the right yeah, time yeah. to lock into it at the right time. Yeah. yeah, I mean the opportunities do come along, and you've just got to be ready for the next one. I mm-hmm. believe, and just get as much um, under your belt as possible, and flexible. Yeah, and be and flexible, flexible, and be ready to pounce. Um, yeah, and be kind to yourself too. I would say, and to recognize that part of this career stuff is out of your control like you can yeah, yeah yeah like you can like you said prepare prepare all you can you know d- yeah. dig into it all you can and uh look for the right opportunities to come along but yeah tr- it, it, so much of it is outside of your it control is. you have to relax and you have to be kind to yourself about that but i think you can also if an opportunity comes up it may not be exactly in your area of experience but there will be transferable skills and things you've done which you can say hey look like I've done something very similar using similar kind of methods or same mm-hmm. tools. So, um, and that happens a lot. And it's just, it's just uh, framing what you've done and why it could be so useful for the post. And I think, and yeah. the, the the job I applied for was not the right fit for me on paper. Mm. Um, it was, I was looking at tropical meteorology, thunderstorms, and yeah. here I was looking at large, and then I moved <laughs> to Bath and looked at large scale. Um, Kind of variability, completely different ends of the planet, completely different scales, or very different scales. Uh, but I was, uh, I could, I could show that I was using the same tools, yeah. and um, and that and that worked out well. I like that idea that like don't let the job description intimidate you or put you off necessarily. You know, no. if you if you th- even have an inkling that you might be able to do that job, just go ahead. Just if just you give it you just just apply. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. And you can you can ignore a lot of the language in, in some of the in some job applications because when people are writing a job application, they're just they have sometimes this ideal person in mind who doesn't exist. They're yeah. not they're not out there. So just just go just ahead go and apply. It. And you know it's a, I guess it's it's a, it will cost you some time and that can be difficult if you've got a lot of things on your plate, but. Um, if you have time, just go for it. Yeah. And I guess that's not so much just, like, I, I hesitate to give advice because I hesitate. I don't want to pretend like I'm a person who knows how things work. But at the same time, I guess if, if you've been through it, you there's a bit of a responsibility to like share 
what your experience has been like and say, okay, this, this is how it's gone for me and here's what I encountered um, without overgeneralizing, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah without yeah. generalizing too much. I think, um, oh, and I think I would also add the, in those eight, nine years, the job market has changed considerably again. And you, you back then we, there were, there were postdoc opportunities that were three, four years and that was standard. And now you're seeing positions for a year. Um, and it's crazy. You That's cannot, crazy. you cannot, even if you live in the city, the, the, the job comes up, you've got to, well, if you, if you don't, you've got to move, which the upheaval of that can take many months yeah. and, you know, settling into an area. And that's, sure. and, you know, maybe that's three months gone of your year. But then you've got to learn this new area, get to know your colleagues, the strengths and weaknesses of your yeah. um, different colleagues and who you can call on help. And then a year's over and you've got to write the paper up, which you take to your next job. So yeah. I, I would say um, I, um, back then I had... Um, I guess that uh, I was lucky that things were quite different, hmm. um, yeah. and I, I there were a few jobs I, I had my own and they, fit, they fitted. But hmm. um, yeah, it does seem a little harder at the moment. Yeah, I think they're those one-year postdocs are crazy. I don't yeah. I don't think people should be advertising this. No, no, <laughs> to be it's, honest, it's just not. It's if not you right. have enough money for a one-year postdoc, don't yeah. just put put that money back somewhere else. Yeah. Even if you need to just give it back to the funder, <laughs> just don't do that to somebody. I mean, I guess I guess well, one thought could be if you have somebody in the building who's ready to do that job. Yeah. That might be a different question, but then you then there's kind of a I think there's a legal responsibility to like advertise the job and to see you know who's best candidate is and stuff like that so there are there are some weird gray areas here and maybe it's good to acknowledge that complexity but um but you definitely it would be really bad for the field to just have nothing but one year postdocs all over the place nobody yeah. nobody would have we'd, we'd all be walking on sand and no, nobody would be able to put down any no, kind no. of but it know, feels roots. like it's more and more the norm um to have these shorter terms with we uh encourage to diversify and collaborate with partners but if you which is great but the pots of money aren't getting any bigger. Right. So if you yeah. are to collaborate with two other universities, but the, you've got the same size pot of money, then suddenly you've got to shrink all your postdocs so everyone gets their postdocs. So instead of one through your postdoc at one institute, you've got three one-year mm. positions. And right. it seems unsustainable. It's definitely unsustainable, yeah. It, it's certainly like you might still be able to do some kind of science that way, but it's not going to be very in-depth and it's not going to no. be like very risky which we need to do some risky science yeah, exactly. and, you know, a one-year postdoc I mean if you're advertising that you, you must if you're the person advertising that then you must have in your head like oh this problem could be done in a year like we can yeah. actually wrap this up yeah. in a year <laughs> well, that's the thing our ambition <laughs> hasn't changed <laughs> if anything yeah it's increased so we're thinking I've got three years of work but I've only got one year of money right I'll I'll, I'll still want the same amount of work <laughs> or I'll advertise this is the thing we want to do but we'll do it in one year yeah that doesn't work we'll just uh, yeah Preferably, robots only need apply, please. In, yeah. Just in, in human <laughs> computing machines. <laughs> no sleeping allowed. No sleeping, yeah. Just the, and that contributes to kind of a, a brutal culture where there's like two, there's uh, an expectation to be a workaholic and there's an expectation yeah. to, you know, to only work. And that's really unhealthy. Yeah. And that's like a, a meat grinder for humans. And it's not, that's not the kind of system we want to set up. No. Um, you know, it, it, it certainly, uh, 
that's not what I want to see happen in no. science. I don't want it to turn into a human meat grinder. Um, maybe that's too graphic of a way to put it, but I'll, I'll go with it. It's I'll quite an image. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, so along those lines, maybe like, I, I really, <clears throat> I think academia has been getting a little better about this, but I think it could do a lot better at um, training students, especially like PhD students, to say, uh, well, the whole tenure track thing, that is the alternative career. Like, you know, we talk about, uh, you can go into, we sometimes use this language with our PhD students where we're like, oh, well, you can go into science or you can go into an alternative career. No, no, the tenure track science thing is the alternative career, and yeah. most folks end up not doing that. Most folks end up, you know, working somewhere in the private sector. And I've got to admit, I have a very poor sense of where everybody is going, but I know they aren't staying in, in science. And, like, mm -hmm. I, I really want... You can find these kind of surveys for bio, uh, biological science, like the biological, like where is everybody going? Yeah. But I really want to see like a flowchart style. Here's all of the PhD students and yeah. here's where they're ending up by, by percentages and by like... I've seen you know, that and I think, I'm not sure if the Royal Society has done it or if it's, um, maybe it's the ERC, European Research yeah. Council, but one of them, yeah, it, the number of PhDs in and how many of them go on to become professors, go into industry. And it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, and the, 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 where the bottlenecks are, uh, right. where, where we need more, um, more funding mm -hmm. to ensure we keep, keep the flow going. Depends on what, what we want, right? Like as a society, what kind of structure do you want? You know, and if we want a system where most PhDs go out into the you know industry, yeah. then that's that's fine. That's fantastic. But we just need to have that as the the norm and the expectation. Yeah. And when we're recruiting people to say, well, here's the likely pathways you could you know, and to just get rid of this romantic notion of everybody yeah. gets to be a professor because it just doesn't, exactly. it doesn't happen. And um, I think we need to see um, say to our students when they are thinking what they should do, whether show them that industry can be a, a hugely positive outcome yeah. for them and obviously um, the economy but but for them as a career move and up we have so many um, small um, startup companies around Cambridge and you know which are fun there's a buzzing atmosphere around here and, yeah. and why wouldn't you want to go into some of those they're doing some great science they're doing yeah. some great innovation so we've got to train people kind of explicitly to expect that and to have the yeah. skills that they would need to do well in the private sector exactly. it's like on to be us. flexible that's on us like that's, a, yeah. that's our job, that's we, our job. We, we can't expect a bunch of young 20 somethings to like no. understand like to well they can understand that but they don't necessarily know like how to get ready for it or yeah. how to like it shouldn't be their problem <laughs> no uh, but we are being actively encouraged as um, scientists to work closer with business yeah. and the, the best way to do that is to um, is to keep in touch with colleagues that have moved on to the yes. business and they'll they'll appreciate what it is to do your job and you can get to know what they do and that's I think that's how good collaborations within industry can really start. That's right that's probably what we're not doing right we're not keeping in touch with those folks who are yeah. moving on to the industry so for, for those of us you know in the academic bubble we're like where do they go we yeah yeah like, so <laughs> if they, they leave the door and that's it we never we'll never see them again which is unfair to yeah. them because it shouldn't really be like they I heard it put somebody on Twitter said it really nicely they said you know once you have a PhD you, you're in the academy you can think of yourself as like okay you're you're that won't go away and yeah. that 
Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you are, if you want to think of yourself as a scholar, that's fine because you have done the work to, you know, get your credentials to be a scholar. And even if you're doing your, your science or whatever it is you're doing, you know, in industry, you can still, that's totally fine to think of yourself in that way. And so, you know, us who are in academics should maybe be, um, we should keep in touch with those folks and we should you know make that explicit like you're saying yeah I like I like that point you know keep up with them and keep those networks going and yeah, don't yeah. consider them to have left I guess sometimes there can be um, it can be harder to collaborate with industrial folks because sometimes industries aren't as keen on like sharing everything they're doing yeah it can be more protective I think maybe also, that's part of where the disconnect comes from and sometimes on different time scales a PhD can last well say three four years so you want to do some research over that time where some industry will want um, a report or an answer yeah within a few months um, you know they need to spin something up quite quickly proof right. of concept so um, it's just getting those expectations right on both sides yeah. but it can work and there's been there's some fantastic examples across um, here at the British Antarctic Survey where that's worked yeah oh, I wanted to um, I wanted to talk about uh, you mentioned you had a student because I definitely want to talk about the machine learning stuff and yeah, your wind energy paper. Oh yeah. You know, I don't know. Like, do you want to pick a, a pathway into that? Do we want to talk <laughs> about your wind energy paper? That might be in, that's concrete, right? So maybe that's yeah, that's concrete. That, that's yeah. that's um, that has been published. Yeah. So I um, became involved with some group of people that were looking at setting up a new set of climate model runs specifically to answer how will the world change in a one point five degree warming world or a two degree warming world. Mm -hmm. So this is aligned with the Paris goals and the ambition to um, limit global average temperatures to two degrees uh, with the ambition to keep them around 1.5. Yeah. So, I mean, no one really worries about half a degree. You, you and I wouldn't mind if it was half a degree warmer or colder today, we wouldn't notice that. But it's, the, it's what it means for extreme events around the world, yeah. what, how it will change the tails yeah. or the the distribution yeah because the, the half a degree is just an average that's just an average yeah. and it doesn't really mean much but to try to um plack out what that means for say number of heat waves or um flooding events or droughts what that might mean for crops mm -hmm. uh, crop yields or prices of food um what that'll mean for damaged buildings the infrastructure etc so i started um some projects with uh, those are thinking about different questions and something that really jumped out at me was how um, how changes in wind could affect say wind energy and we believe in a warming world that um, the Atlantic jet stream is going to shift northward um, so we'll so the UK will be windier mm. as a result and northern Europe will be windier so we might expect an increase um, in the efficiency of our wind turbines so I did some uh, some analysis looking at that, and we found that in if at, so at the moment our the planet is around one degree warmer than um, pre-industrial levels. So if we go from current around one degree to one point five, we could see um, an increase in wind energy. Where um, wind turbines at the moment run around twenty seven percent of their maximum capacity. Oh really? And we could see that at the onshore wind. Uh, wind turbines and we could see that my, my research suggests that would jump up to around 30 so 27 percent is that just because the wind's not always blowing is it's that not always blowing yeah um so there's a cubic relationship between wind speed and 
the energy that comes out yeah. of the turbines. And yeah, the wind's not always blowing, um, and you would need very strong winds to get it right up near 100%. And it, only a few occasions have we seen that wind turbines have had to be switched off or uh, sort of folded yeah. up because the winds are too strong like yeah. during a storm. If they're always close to 100, we've got other problems. Then yeah, something exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that was yeah, my main output of that wind energy work is um, we saw um, an increase of um, a few extra percentage points. Mm. But that actually... Um, that could be um, that could mean seven hundred thousand more powering seven hundred thousand more homes yeah. in the UK, which is not nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big increase, and that's just onshore alone. We didn't look at offshore. Uh, yeah, and the UK's been doing kind of a nice job on deploying more like wind energy and solar yeah. energy, and like that's been that's been really nice to see actually. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, okay, it's happening. Like it's happening, you know, <laughs> and the businesses are starting to realise it's it's a cheaper option. Yeah, uh, no. Um, and it's um, this the heat wave we've had this summer has caused um, nuclear nuclear power plants across France to shut down. It's getting too hot. Hmm. That's something I had never quite too hot. For the too hot to, for them to run efficiently or safely. Properly, or yeah, or yeah. I think problems with hmm. the cooling system. So they've had to shut them down. Oh wow! Okay. And this is something I'd never quite realised because um, the years ago the options were to go nuclear. Or to go to wind and solar and use renewables uh, or clean energy. I feel like I don't know anything about this, so I'm no. just speculating. But I know there are nuclear power plants in, you know, Georgia where I grew up, which is super hot and humid. So I feel like maybe maybe this is a design issue. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, They yeah, just that's... went like, oh, it'll never get hotter than. Oh, yes, it will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'll never get hotter than thirty-five degrees. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it will. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, so this, so. Your analysis, you said that you found that it would get kind of generally windier, and so you'll have, as a result of that, you're expecting uh, potentially to have more uh, wind energy available. Um, and one thing that I heard an engineer talk about once is like the, the phase of when that wind energy is available and when you need it. Um, I don't know, is that something you thought about as like, um, there's, and there's no pressure, I mean, you know, this may not have been part of your analysis, but like, um, you know, sometimes when you have a lot of wind energy it's like maybe not actually that hot because you've got strong winds and maybe there's a front blowing through so you don't necessarily need you know the, yeah. the wind energy at that time because you don't need to run a lot of air conditioners and things yeah. and it's actually pretty pleasant out but um the so that that means you need a way to store that energy you need yeah. like good battery technology yeah. if your demand like when you need that energy and when the winds are really blowing if those are out yeah. of phase i mean it's it's an area i mean it, starting to get into but um, from, I believe that um, about 18% of our, or 18% of European energy comes from wind yeah. so yeah, nice. if it's slightly blurry one day taking it up to 19 or 20% isn't mm. a bad thing I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where we're not using wind energy because it's too windy right. I think there's still a long way to go but you're right storing energy would be, be a game changer yeah. if we could um, have that, that battery technology. That's just something I heard an engineer talk about once. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I, I, So, um, yeah, do you want to talk about the analysis a little bit? Because you used a bunch of machine learning techniques, and I think, you know, that's that would be a great thing so to talk about. So, um, for that paper, I 
did very little of the machine learning um, analysis. We were using large data sets, and that's the idea to, to get at the tails of your distribution. You must mm. have large data sets. Okay, because so you need good statistics. And, good statistics. Yeah. You cannot talk about a 100-year event if you've only got 100 years of yeah. model data. <laughs> yeah. um, so for that analysis, we're using these, yeah, these large, um, specifically designed um, climate model simulations. And I think there's a lot of um, potential there for using machine learning techniques. But um, to get that, to, to move that paper along quite quickly, we, we use stuff we already had. Um, it's fairly um, traditional uh, techniques there. Yeah. But we did use, well, we, 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 we assessed the, the differences, say, between wind energy um, or wind in, in the different models, and we applied a uh, wind power curve, so the the conversion, the transformation of wind speed to wind power, and that's we did that with um, scientists at Oxford University, and they'd already uh, built this statistical model of how you convert the two. Um, so we used we collaborated with them on that. Okay. But this is stuff yeah. that had already been published, um, so we're using their tools. But machine learning is something I'm very keen to get into, and I've got some um, two PhD students working with me from October looking at how we might um, make more of the data sets, the diverse range of data sets we have. So surface measurements, uh, satellite data sets, climate model simulations, and how we might better combine, intelligently combine these different data sets to reduce uncertainties in our, say, future projections. What would that look like? How do you start to intelligently combine them? Like, what so we've got a couple of projects looking at um, urban resilience, so how urban environments adapt uh, to heat waves or, and how they may cope with the future level, the number of heat waves, the frequency, the magnitude of heat waves we see in the future. And there's all sorts, and, and one big thing we're interested in there is um, air conditioning usage. So um, a heat wave may come along, everyone sticks on their air conditioning and then suddenly demand for energy goes up yep. and you know, can the power grid uh, cope with that. So the useful information we they need is how many heat waves we're going to see in the future and how much power will be needed to cope with those events. Mm. So uh, traditionally you might just look at climate model data and say how many heat waves we'll see in the future. Well that actually, if I provided that information to an energy company, that may not be very useful. They'll say, well great, okay, we're going to see more heat waves, but what does that mean for power? Um, are these heat waves going to last longer? Uh, you know, are bodies adapt to different temperatures? So if um, if summers are coming warmer, uh, be going to be warmer in general, we might actually um, become more com comfortable or get used to those higher temperatures. We may not need the air conditioning so much, whereas if the temperature spikes more, if suddenly you get a hot day in March, um, you know, it might only be 28 degrees, but we're not used to that temperature, and then suddenly you might think, oh, I'm going to set the air conditioning on. Mm. So there's a lot, it, it's, it's highly non-linear, and there's a lot of um, factors that can um, drive air conditioning usage. I mean, um, air quality is another one, pollution. The temperature and humidity might be perfectly comfortable outside, but if you've got an air pollution event, what might you do? You shut the windows, stick mm. your air conditioning mm. on. Yeah. Um, so that's we're we're starting to ask those kind of questions. Um, what will the future of air conditioning be in the future? And can we use machine learning to intelligently um, combine the different weather variables like air quality, humidity, temperature to be able to predict that? Right, because you know something about you know how air conditioning is used 
now, currently, recently, yeah. you know, currently, so you can, you know, train some sort of statistical model to say, well, when you see this sort of change in the humidity and temperature and this and that, and then you might expect to see this kind of change in the power usage. Yeah. Yeah. You can exactly. find a way to link all these variables up together, and it's that's that sounds like a really sensible application for a machine learning sort of tool because. Uh, we don't have an equation for here's how people use air conditioning. No. You know, we don't have like a. We can write down, you know, conservation of momentum and conservation of heat and all these wonderful physical laws for our physical system, but at the boundary between you know people and then the physical system and like the climate system, we don't have a clue really. No, no, no. And we have no way to even construct a basic theory. You know, like um, I had a social psychologist on here a few episodes ago. And, you know, we spent some time talking about how it's really difficult to predict human behavior. And, like, yeah. it's just not something we understand. And it's it's hard enough for people to describe their own behavior. Like, why did you yeah. do that? Oh, I'm really not sure. I, I couldn't even tell you. So, um, yeah, so I like that idea of working on, you know, a science problem that's at that boundary between society and, and like, how, you know, yeah. humans function and, yeah. and navigate their world and the physical climate system. So... You're kind of pushing out in that direction. You're doing more and more yeah. of that sort of thing. I, so, um, yeah, I'm, something that really fascinates me is how climate actually affects us and as, and society. And we don't know what the global average temperature of the planet will be, say, in 2100, whether we continue on a business-as-usual climate emissions scenario, uh, warming scenario, or whether we... Uh, reduce um, our emissions, slam on the brakes, and we sort of level off um, to levels slightly higher than today. But in a sense, um, what the global CO2 concentrations are, average temperature, really doesn't mean much to people, um, you know, in countries mm. or cities. So we need to know what does that mean for, like I said, flooding, heat waves, right. and it's still abstract. It's, it's exactly, and it, I'm just trying to. Uh, um, connect that that yeah that that, that uh, and reduce that abstraction. Scientists are so scientists are so used to working with that as their their kind of currency or the thing that is driving, you know, the changes in the physical system. Yeah, yeah it's important to really explicitly connect yeah. that to actual impacts and yeah. you know, heat waves and flooding yeah. and things like you said. I mean, we talked about um, subgrid scale processes mm-hmm. earlier, how we're running climate models on large, coarse grid scales. But the thing we're really interested in might be something the size of a city, something the size of a thunderstorm. Yeah. And something I've been interested in a while is can we um, relate the large-scale modes of climate variability, so um, the El Nino um, phenomena or the North Atlantic oscillations, these different oscillations, uh, seesaws and pressure that we see around the globe, can we relate those to local scale um, mm. events. So if the El Nino is in a certain phase and the North Atlantic Oscillation is a certain phase and we see that we've got maybe a large Arctic sea ice year, um, large, then could all those things um, together give us, um, um, as, help us predict what um, the frequency of thunderstorms or flooding yeah. might be, say, over London. And I'm not saying we need to give it a number, but can we produce a probabilistic yeah. estimate prediction for that, um, mm. which would be very useful for uh, urban planners, policy makers, local government. Yeah, for sure. And, and can you do that sort of thing? Can you, like, can you make those? <laughs> that's, that's an ongoing question. You know? Well, I think we are going to try. 
yes and yes yeah. and we there's um there's a real big push from the um U- uk research innovation um the, the research councils to um to start using um these artificial intelligence machine learning type technologies to see if we can make more sense of these big data large data sets we have out there yeah. and see if we can intelligently combine um weather station data which are just time series for a given point but somehow combine that with satellite data which gives you mm. um and you know unprecedented detail over the planet but for a shorter time period over maybe a few decades and then with climate models which gives us something different again longer time scales um but there's the climate models themselves are not um entirely representative of of the observed climate mm, of yeah. the observed earth but gives us a fairly good picture of how climate might change in the future with respect to today so when we say intelligently combine you know we we mentioned it kind of briefly already but i guess that has to be you know intelligently has to mean something about well we know that momentum is conserved right yeah you, you exactly somehow you need to put these like our basic physical concepts yeah, need exactly. to be in there um, because I think what we, I would say that what we probably don't want to do is to run off fully in the statistical direction yeah. and abandon all of our kind Absolutely of physical right. yeah, constraints yeah. that we know. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and I think that's something I'm still trying to get my head around is how do we incorporate some of those you know, equations and yeah. physical concepts into machine learning approaches. But I wonder, I mean, this is it was still early days, but I wonder whether if you provide a an algorithm with enough climate model data which are built on physical processes and uh, you know, the best of our physical understanding whether it would learn hmm. some of those relationships which are based on physics yeah. I mean if you see enough um, maps of temperature humidity then you would hope that it would predict something which is realistic you're not suddenly yeah. going to see a relative humidity of 110% right. because yeah. it's never seen it before so why would it it shouldn't predict hmm. that And so, but you may have to but the, until we um, start trying this I think we can try different tools we can some of these distributions are not gaussian or not normally distributed that there are hard boundaries like relative humidity mm. stops between zero and 100 so you might yeah. you might need to um, tune our different models to ensure we um, stick to those those uh, yeah. limits I, I suspect you could do some of that you could teach um, a machine learning algorithm about some of these you know basic equations i remember i can't remember where i heard it but i heard a radio story maybe NPR a couple many years ago about how a team of scientists gave, you know, they had a pendulum set up and they basically gave a machine learning algorithm. Well, here's how a pendulum, here's how this pendulum is moving. And here's all the forces that we're subjecting it to and here are the kind of other conditions. And it was able to um, learn or pr- predict, I should say, it said, hey, I think F equals MA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, the force is... equals the mass times acceleration of this yeah. thing, which is, uh, and just from the data, you know, it, it obviously yeah. didn't do a derivation from no, no. first principles or something. <laughs> it just looked at the data long enough and said, yeah. oh, when you make that, this product, it equals this other thing. Yeah. <laughs> and no. so we could do that sort of thing. We could. I, I think if you've got uh, enough data, another thing I think it's worth stressing is that, um, I don't think, you know, using these machine learning tools is a substitute for um, coming up with a theory and yeah. testing it. But it might give us uh, an initial clue or an idea. Um, we might um, 
feed in all this these large data sets so the there's a new data set coming out this year with lots of climate couple climate model simulations called CMIP6 yeah which could um which could be up to 90 terabytes of uh of this is huge it's larger than any any of the other data sets <laughs> yeah um we've got so how do we work with that data and i think if you know we had tools that we could say plug in this large data set um CMIP6 with some machine learning and we're able to find some patterns we or it's able to um find a signal of change that we hadn't quite looked at that we then we might design model experiments to take that further and think okay might this be something real yeah you know is there a connection between um fires in california and um a drought um, Mm. in russia and a flooding event in um the Middle East, yeah. and you know, so the, the, what connects those? And if um, if we if the machine learning algorithm believes there is a connection, it doesn't know what that connection is, but there are there are there's a, hmm. a spatial temporal uh, correlation or connection, statistical connection there. Then we might come up with our theories to try to explain that. That's funny. Yeah. So like the <laughs> the thought of the machine learning algorithm says, here's the equation, and then we run off and try to derive it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, how did you get this? Can I can I show this is consistent with the primitive equations or something like yeah. that? And like something that somehow hundreds thousands of theorists have missed over a hundred years. Yeah. It could happen. I guess <laughs> that might be that might happen. You know, some like you said, something relating uh, a big scale NAO type pattern yeah. to a small scale you know, range of probabilities, you know, maybe something like that could uh, could come out of it. So, okay, so we talked a lot about the possibilities, and it's really exciting. What's the, are you okay on time? Do you yeah, 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 right? absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the limitations? What are some of the things that we, like, probably can't do? Because I think everybody's getting really excited, myself included, about, like, yeah. all the stuff we can do with machine learning, but... What uh, limitations? Find, good to find these boundaries of, like, yeah, we shouldn't yeah. try to do this with it. Something I think that's really important to... Remember is that the machine learning tools will only be able to predict something it's seen before. So mm, yeah. um, tipping points in climate system, I think, are, would be a really challenging thing to look at. So I know the sudden collapse of a an ice shelf in Antarctica, mm. um, the reversal of a, you know an important um, oceanic circulation, or something that we've been reliant on for um, historically, and then suddenly mm. it switches off um, you know, thermal component of the thermohaline circulation or something yeah. um, so, so, it's, so and, and suddenly we get um, the, the seasons as we know it might change um, for a given region um, so I think um, trying to predict uh, tipping points like that in, in the air system um, it's just not going to happen unless we rely unless we have um, good climate model simulations that we believe um, are able to represent those changes and we've provided enough of them but either the paleo climate modeling community um, they've got some huge questions um, that they're still trying to address so. and not a lot of data to do it with and not a lot of data to, to, to do it with, exactly yeah. so I think it'll be a while before they do too much big data stuff I, I agree yeah. exactly um, for paleo but there are paleo MIP there are paleo model intercomparison yeah. projects so they, they might could do something with those actually yeah um, I mean they my understanding is that those models, um, so compared to the models we use, CMIP five, which are about recent uh, climate and recent future climate, they um, there's still some range um, uncertainty in the models. Do slightly different things. They all seem to follow the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. But in the 
paleoclimate model community, the models can be quite different and they can show different signs of change. Yeah. Um, uh, so they got real challenges. Ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay, so that's a good point that the you know, machine learning algorithms, they will only know what they've seen yeah. and they will only predict what they've seen. And that's one important difference between that approach and, say, deriving something from a bunch of equations, which is what our climate models do. They're just solving differential equations. Yeah, exactly. That if there is a if the physical process that we're talking about, like some kind of tipping point, is in those equations, then it will show up in the model and we'll be able to make some statement about, yeah, I think if the ice, this ice sheet collapses, then the sea level will do this, and yeah. the uh, Arctic sea ice will do this, that uh, the, those processes, it's, it's interesting, it's like those are encoded in those equations, like that's, that's there, yeah. um, but because machine learning represents this orthogonal approach to trying to understand the world yeah. you know that it, it only it can't yeah it can't predict completely new things it can only predict what's exactly. already there it can it can make those structures pop out a bit more that we may have missed but this is where your point maybe on how we include physical understanding into these algorithms so to tell them the algorithms machine learning algorithms that uh, ice melts at one degree mm. c that, why yeah. would it know that until we've and we've told it and and the, the the equations of momentum and conservation of energy it's if we can somehow combine these then at least it'll have a better chance and it can predict something that would be within the confines of what is physically um, yeah. allowed so we, we've kind of don't don't feel pressure to have like an amazing answer to this I think it's just a fun question of um, and we're, we're kind of hinting around the edges of, of it I think but just in terms of the physical climate system, you know, are we likely to see, do you think we're likely to see any big revolutions in our understanding in the next few years, or have, are the big pieces in place and we're kind of making small adjustments, possibly important adjustments, mm -hmm. like if you really want to apply climate science to other areas like human health, like you said, but, you know, are, are we likely to see any big revolutions um, or is it more of a small-scale tuning process, you know? I don't know, that's a difficult one, but I've actually been, um, I think my eyes have been opened with the, um, addressing the question how will the earth change in a 1.5 and 2 degree warming world, yeah. because that was a question that was set to us by policymakers and governments um, through the Paris Agreement. Um, and that's really targeted our thinking, because I don't, before we we haven't looked at those, we've been looking at um, what will be the sign of change or you know, will, will we see a reduction in sea ice yeah. um, and under these future climate scenarios but um, actually getting down to the detail, what will it mean for flooding events, the frequency of these flooding events, what will it mean for magnitude, what will that mean for people um, and migration, or what will that mean for uh, crop yields, we, so we, we have maps of where we grow different crops and we can um, map that onto how we believe um, temperatures and rainfall could change in these different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And the difference between a 1.5 and a 2 degree warming world is tiny compared to what, we, what we're used to looking at. We, mm. we would say, I think 10 years ago we'd say that's in the noise, we cannot distinguish yeah. between the two. But we have to, that's the challenge that's yeah, set yeah. to us, we have to that's distinguish right. these two worlds. Yeah, I like hitting my models with a hammer, just like bang. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, if you that's, want to, what we're, that's what we're used to doing. Climate models, <laughs> running them are so expensive that if you want to see a signal of change, you have to, as I say, bang it with a huge change. So yeah. you'll, you'll run it with 
current uh, CO2 forcing, and then you'll double it um, just to, just to see the change. <laughs> yeah, let's just quadruple CO2. Oh, look, yeah. the, the change is that we see a positive change in pressure here. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, we, we, would, we would hope never to get to a world where we're doubling mm-hmm. CO2, not at least within the lifetime of humans. Um, so what is the difference between these, what used to be thought of as subtle differences in... Um, yeah. in global average so, temperature. So I like that point because it seems like what we're saying is that the the first or, the zeroth order and first order stuff is in place and that's not likely to change in terms of the physical climate system. So now we, we are in the state where as a field we're like looking at relatively small adjustments compared to those first order questions but they're important because they will have impacts on like how people live and yeah. migration and know what the future will actually look like for you know us tiny you know spongy uh, bodies that are trying to survive on the surface mm-hmm. of this you know giant rock um, so yeah, no I think that's an uh, I think that's an important point that um, you know often you find these kind of uh, well they're kind of disingenuous these new stories that and I don't I don't want to give any examples but you know um, these kind of uh, I don't I don't I don't, I don't really, even really want to call them contrarian, but you know these new news articles will come out to say, uh, like, hey, the scientists have discovered that there's actually a volcano underneath this ice sheet that's causing it to melt, and it will be presented as if, oh, this changes everything. It, it will be presented as if the whole of climate science is a house yeah. of cards, and you find one tiny thing, yeah. and then that just makes the whole thing collapse. But that's just not what it looks like to us. Like that's just not what the field looks like on our side of it. It's more like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Where there's we've got the basics of the jigsaw puzzle in place but there are missing pieces here and there and pieces don't quite fit that we're in that's the kind of state that the field is in is that, yeah the big pieces are there and we're just filling in some of the gaps and yeah. filling in some of the details yeah I mean we're, things we argue about conferences are the, the minute, what many might see as minutiae details but mm. they're the things that as you say what jigsaw pieces is what does it represent and getting down to this we're not talking about the big picture stuff anymore. Right. You don't yeah. go to a conference and go, "Oh, is the is the earth warming?" You know, <laughs> what what's, what CO two? What does that do? Yeah. Um, you know, when, when it's it's um it's interesting that um, the 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 way the media represents um, you know the things we might talk about day yeah. there is a is you know that's those are the conversations we're having in the seventies. Um, <laughs> yeah, that discussion. <clears throat> the, the basics, like you said, that discussion has been over for a long time. And even the, the real basics of it, you know, I like to say it's Victorian era science, right? It's, you know, you put yeah. CO2 in the atmosphere, you get more energy down here, and that energy goes somewhere and it does something. <laughs> yeah. And that's the real, real basics of it. it's where it goes, that's the interesting thing. And some places may be cooler in a, yeah. with increased CO2 and others warmer. Yeah. And, that, and that's the, I guess, the, the interesting thing is how will these extremes change? Um, what are the knock-on effects? We're not going to see a, a uniform warming everywhere of um, half a degree. Yeah, that's right. I, I had this really interesting question. Um, well, I, I found it just kind of reading around online, and um, I kind of wanted to put it to you, just give you a chance to, um, to talk about it a little bit, if you want to. We don't have to. There's no, there's, you know, I always like to say there's no pressure. This isn't like... You know, we're doing this together. This isn't like an inter. I'm not grilling you or putting you on the spot or something. But like, so we've got this really clear case for, you know, changing our economy, for like, you know, moving to cleaner energy sources, and it's 
certainly to like the folks like us who are privileged to have our noses in the, the book of it every day that we like it's so clear but there's still folks who you know the, the idea of you know shifting away from our current kind of economy it makes them nervous and so the question that that uh, I thought was really well put and thought-provoking is like so let's, let's imagine those folks who are worried about transitioning to a cleaner kind of economy and let's um, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they have, you know, that they're not being malicious. Yeah. I think there are some malicious a- actors out there, for, yeah, for yeah. sure, that are spewing absolute nonsense and garbage into the climate conversation, and I have very strong feelings about that, <laughs> um, because I think we should at least be basing our conversations on actual information yeah. as opposed to garbage. Uh, but let's, let's say the folks who are imagining, like, they... They're, they're well-meaning people, but they're nervous. What do you think they're worried about? Like, what do you think the folks who are worried about taking action on climate, you know, what's what's making them kind of uh, hesitant to, um, to just to jump in and to... I mean, some people just in. don't like change and they like the um, the life they, they're used to. Mm. And I... Um, and then there are others that um, enjoy... Um, ideas and new technologies and you know what that might bring and it can be quite exciting yeah you know that's the the number of people that um refuse to use computers in the beginning and they were were stuck with typewriters what 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 is this technology what how is it going to help us and it's it's not until you've tried it until you realize actually there's huge benefits to this um i think it's this i am i'm not sure if it's um the majority of people that anymore that are scared of moving, say, off fossil fuels. I think many of us see benefits to it. So cars in the streets, the fumes that our kids are breathing yeah. in schools. So why why wouldn't you want to move to electric? Yeah, um, yeah. It just doesn't make sense. I feel like that's true in the UK. I've gotten that sense culturally. It's still true in the US and a lot of places that, um, I mean, especially in the southeast where I grew up, that there's a reflexive kind of, you know, the instinct is from a lot of people is like no don't change anything keep it just yeah. just like it is now uh, these you know that the, they have a distrust of you know experts and expertise and they just don't want to hear about it yeah. and um uh, it's difficult i think i'm still trying to find my way to like because I, I want to i want to find a way to really engage with that yeah really like in, a, in an honest way yeah and to say okay i want to recognize what you are afraid of and I want to you know understand the validity and some of those you know in your feelings of like but if we completely change everything what what's that going to look like yeah and because it, it's both right change is both you know it's exciting and it's also scary and both of those could be right yeah <laughs> there are benefits and risks and both of those yeah. are, are legitimate um I mean lately I've I've really latched on to this picture that's like um uh, one of one of my old professors um, from CSU has been putting out there a while, and like uh, Emily Shutberg here has been putting out a while. You know the idea that um, you know moving away from carbon, we can actually do it in a way that's that is going to make a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. It actually doesn't have to be this like economy versus yeah, I mean, you know, green stuff. Jobs, yeah. new jobs in the US. There are far more new jobs in solar yeah. than say in coal. And you know, it's, it, if anything, it's helping the economy. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, creating a healthier environment for us to live in. So yeah. well, why not? Yeah, yeah. You know, the old professor, um, his name is uh, Scott Denning, 
and he likes to say that climate change is uh, simple, serious, and solvable. And the solvable part is you know, is, yeah. is the optimistic uh, part of it. That like, and I mean, I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that yeah. in a, some. In the UK, sometimes when somebody says optimistic, they mean yeah. unrealistic. <laughs> That's a good point. But yeah. what I mean is <laughs> realistic, a uh, good positive optimism of like, no, yeah. actually, if we do this, if we if we move to a cleaner economy, you know, we can. It's going to be healthier for everybody and you can actually make a lot of money doing it it's yeah. not about so um you know we we made a lot of wealth was generated the last time we made an energy infrastructure and we can do that again yeah. we can remake an energy infrastructure and generate a lot of wealth that way um and you know and, and i'm not an economist so i know there's going to be some subtleties to that argument that i'm missing but i guess i'm just still trying to find my way on this divide of like okay respecting what people are nervous about and also you know, trying to find a real way to engage with that and yeah. while also saying like it can be really good for us and actually it should be and it looks like it will be really good for us as a society yeah, yeah. but also there's the argument well why not you know as an insurance policy let's imagine that 97% of climate scientists are wrong um, <laughs> but why not why not implement solar and wind if it's cheaper anyway yeah. and let's diversify our um, energy sources anyway, and let's do all those things. Um, we're only running across Europe eighteen percent of wind at the moment, but you know that could increase. Um, it it would only be helping our. Um, uh, we wouldn't be solely reliant on, um, or we'd be less reliant on um, oil and, and gas, which yeah, you know, energy's uh, prices are changing all the time, and they're only going to go up as it's harder and harder. So why let's, if nothing else, let's um, let's. Build a more resilient energy system. Yeah. And um, I got an example of that. Like the uh, this is just something I read. So somebody feel free to fact check me. But um, so I understand that the U.S. military is trying to move away from you know, using gas and oil because to do that you need a supply chain, right? You need a ch- you need to get the oil and yeah. the gas to the the bases out in the middle of the desert potentially, and that it creates a point of vulnerability. Like if you've got a line along which you're moving oil and gas and that's something that somebody could then attack and potentially cut off those bases but if you can just throw up a bunch of solar panels you know problem solved and you can get your own energy from the sun and you really can be more uh, isolated and and less dependent on having a a line back a supply line you'd still need other supplies right but i'm just you know but 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 the energy part you could solve exactly yeah um yeah that's one example and then um you know, countries can get more independent too, to where they need to do less kind of buying of oil and stuff from each other. That yeah. they can just set up their own energy infrastructure and, and have it, have it there ready to go. Um, yeah, and uh, Caroline Holmes and I were talking about how like um, a, a couple of episodes ago, or maybe the last one, about how we're those of us who like work in the physical side of it, we're kind of privileged because whenever some of this social and political stuff gets to be too much, we can retreat back into the comfort of like, I'm just going to play with my model. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to do math. Because <laughs> I really, I respect those folks who are really out on the social, you know, front line yeah. of this every day. Cause that there has to be an emotionally taxing element to that, to like having your, you know, cause some of these problems are really thorny about like, how yeah. do you overcome this resistance to do anything and how do you overcome this resistance to like move in a particular direction where's that inertia coming from um yeah so it's uh i really respect those folks who can can live in that space yeah um yeah let's see so i wanted to oh you know i wonder 
and again, this is just a thing we're doing together. Do you think there are bits of this climate puzzle that people aren't talking about? Is there like oh. is there something that people aren't really addressing that maybe isn't getting enough attention? Um, I think um, one thing I would say is um, people focus a lot on say global average temperatures, sort of the main indicator of climate change. But um, it's always worth remembering that. Um, Ocean, the ocean has been acidifying. Yeah. Um, we're seeing coral bleaching. Um, we're seeing greening of uh, say some forests and the change in. Um, uh, there, there are so many other indicators. The stratosphere has been cooling over the last few decades because we're trapping more heat right. in the yeah. lower layer of the troposphere. Yeah. So the stratosphere has been cooling. So there are lots of arguments, um, you know, or pieces, and it's. And I think we do as a community focus too much on the one indicator of surface surface temperature change right yes and i think if people sort of the general public realize actually there are many other indicators and that affects as you say corals and what what does mean for the communities uh, that the the fisheries Mm. that live there what that means for our food supply chain you know there are so many uh, interconnected things so i think just um changing the message sometimes might remind people that it's not all about surface temperature that's right yeah because the surface temperature um that's just mostly the atmosphere. Yeah. The atmosphere is a tiny part of the climate system. You know, yeah. Most of the heat's going into the ocean. Yeah, I mean, ninety percent of the yeah. heat capacity is in the ocean. So yeah. let's look. Let's look everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so the surface temperature sometimes just reflects the fact that that energy is being shuffled from one part of the yeah. climate system to the other. Exactly. You know, if you get a surge, a sudden increase in temperatures, that might just be the ocean. You know, released some heat uh, over a few decades yeah. and just. Uh, could be completely natural yeah, yeah yeah that's right so that's what's really bizarre you know sometimes that's another thing that uh contrarians might do is they'll focus on times in the surface temperature which are kind of flat you know when the surface mm, temperature doesn't yeah. change that much and they'll say ha yeah <laughs> as if any climate scientist had predicted a monotonic you know rise in surface <laughs> temperature which is yeah. nobody has ever said that no, yeah. no climate scientist has ever said well we just expected the surface temperature to just go right up steadily like no nobody said that. i mean that was a, a real <laughs> communication blunder i think on our mm. part i mean it was it's to anyone working in climate science is obvious you're going to get uh fits and starts and jumps yeah. um in any system but um, trying to explain something that we just knew that this is temperature heights yeah but look at other, other metrics yeah, yeah. look at um, ocean acidification that's continued to go up right. um, yeah and even just like looking at the ocean heat content that's, that's kind of a better thermometer that's been going up more steadily than the yeah, surface yeah, yeah. temperature has um, you know, like especially in the upper part of the ocean you know, we've, there's been some really nice work done on that in recent years just showing that trend uh, and when I say nice, I mean scientifically accurate. It's scary, but it's scientifically <laughs> yeah, accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get back to, like, we, I really like that thread, that arc of the conversation. That was really fun. Um, I wanted to ask you some kind of uh, short questions that you can kind of feel free to react to. And this is more about, like, you and your experience, and stuff, okay. if that's all right. So, like, I like to ask, um, and I totally stole it from another podcast, because all of my <laughs> questions I steal from other sources, and yeah. then just throw it together into a pot to make a podcast. Um so what's what's something you learned about writing? Like, what's a nice Ooh. what's a lesson you learned about writing? Yeah, okay, good one. Um, I think the most important lesson I've learned about writing is um, just do it, just get something done on paper and show it to people. Mm. And I think something that comes with experience is um, you. Like now I'm less 
nervous or afraid to show something that's completely wrong, full of typos, doesn't mm. make sense, I've repeated myself, but yeah. that's fine, just get it out there. Yeah. And then get some comments back. And the more senior colleagues in that, you know, over time, they know that it's meant to be rough. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, just get it down. And that's the only way to move things along. Um, my wind energy paper, I had a tight deadline. I had something to do up to the beginning of um, it was last October, uh, um, last August, sorry. I had something to, to do at the beginning of August, and then I had uh, another deadline at the end. So I had to do it in that month. Right. So okay. just, I just got pen on paper, just get it down and fire it off straight away yeah. and make sure I got, and got comments back and just, it just carried on and it just, it just works. Yeah. If you worry too much about not showing people, you'll just slow yourself down. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I had a, an experience kind of like that where I surprised myself. I was just on the train and, you know, I, I had like a basic report that had some basic text in it um, and I was surprised, like, I just was on the train and I wrote most of the paper. I'm like, this yeah. isn't like me at all. <laughs> like, just writing yeah. quickly and just having it show up. But I, I did that, right? I yeah. did the, I just put it down on paper. Just get it down. And laid, laid, I spent time iterating on it and yeah, just yeah. it later, yeah. Yeah, but instead of starting with a blank page and thinking, what's the next paragraph and get that right, just write the whole thing so you've got the yeah. shape of it, the big picture, and then get into the detail and, you know, might give it a second pass. And then send it to someone you trust who, you know, a, a, next, a senior scientist or something and just get their, their opinion on yeah. it. Um. I'm trying to write this paper and I, I made a PDF called everything.pdf and it has every <laughs> yeah. possible result yeah, yeah, yeah. that, you know, I mean, not most Ten. of that's not going to be in the paper, but I just okay. needed it to be in a single document, yeah. you know, for me to like be able to see the results and compare and think about it. And I'm trying to see what kind of story falls out of that. So... That was another impulse of just like no, just get something down. Yeah. Just don't you know? Try exactly. not to just stare at it, because that probably you know just put stuff on paper, make figures, you know, yeah. just spit and and over time something will start to crystallize. Yeah. Like a, a thread, a narrative will start to appear. Do you like that process? Do you like writing? Like writing yeah, papers, I, you know? I enjoy it now more. I think I found it stressful in the beginning because I thought it had to be right the first time, mm. and I didn't want to show my um, line manager or my senior colleagues didn't want to show them something which I felt wasn't my best right yeah and I think that's crazy you just got to <laughs> now now I do I think you just um, there are not enough hours in the day to do your job but I just need to write something down and move it along yeah um, I had someone said to me the other day that one thing they do is if they're writing for an hour they just keep writing they don't let their fingers leave the keys they just keep writing all their thoughts down so and they write the you know say an introduction and there are going to be issues. That's fine. But you've started. You've mm -hmm. you've got past that blank page, um, that, that that fear of a blank page. You've got something down, and you can then just go through and with a red pen and delete stuff, move stuff around. Yeah. For but sure. once you've started, hmm. that's to me at least that's the biggest hurdle. It's concrete. Uh, it's, it's there. I've got something to work on, yeah. and I've got something that others can comment on. They cannot comment on a blank piece of paper or yeah. one perfectly written paragraph. So. <laughs> this is a really nice paragraph. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, now now okay. another 20. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have to get over that hurdle of, you know, the blank, I wanted to say piece of paper, but the blank, you know, screen or blank, yeah. you know, Word document or LaTeX document or whatever it is yeah. you're, you're doing. Um, over Leaf, people are writing online yeah. now. I haven't gotten into that. The cool kids are using it now. The cool yeah, kids yeah, are writing yeah, online yeah. on the cloud. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's what they're doing. Yeah, with their Python modules and their like yeah, exactly. iPod, iPod, Jupyter notebooks and yeah. To the, yeah. <laughs> oh man, 
And then that's going to change. And then this Julia thing is coming to change all Julia's, of that as well. Yeah, uh, they reached version yeah. one yesterday. I popped up my Twitter feed, so that's the next Python, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then something else is going to come along. Yeah, and then we're all just going to collapse, exhausted from learning thirty new languages in yeah. ten years. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we'll just let the machine learning algorithms take over. To and they'll the just take over by then anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. They'll write themselves. How about writing grants? Was well, something you learned about like writing proposals? Because that that's a, I think that's a different. Monster. That's a different beast. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I've not been, I've not led, um, my own project yet, which has been successful. I've written. I've just. Uh, submitted a fellowship is my I'd say my the second fellowship I submitted where I've seriously um, given everything I believe is yep. um, as good as it could be uh, with and I've got help on board uh, I um, wrote it well in advance so I think the most important thing there is to look at what the funder wants and to uh, pretty much steal their language if they are interested in um, these specific grand challenges and they, they and then then make sure you address those those things exactly. So I've, yeah. I applied for one of these UKRI Future Leadership yeah. uh, Future Leader Fellows, which is a four-year fellows and with a chance of a further three years. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it, it gave me the excuse to read the UKRI strategy document. Right. I knew exactly what they wanted, I'm so sure I made thrilling. sure... Yeah, it was fun, yeah. <laughs> has to be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, those, so. those things, no, that wasn't a dig on them. No, no, no. There, there's no way to make those documents exciting. No, there just no. isn't. <laughs> there's lots of pretty pictures in there. I couldn't yeah, use yeah. those. Um, but um, absolutely, they're just... And in a sense, I just copy and pasted their language. Um, and I put it in quotes, so it was obviously a, a quote. But I, I could show that what I was doing was a dr- directly addressing the things they were looking yes. for and concerns. And I think you've just got to... Um, connect those dots so clearly. Yeah. Um, they can work for job applications too. Like, look at the language yeah. they're using in the application. Uh, yeah, it's the same. Because, you know, having spent, so I, I haven't, um, having spent some time on the other side, like reviewing proposals and reviewing papers and reviewing job applications, like, I now understand a lot better, I think, the value of please make my job easy. <laughs> Like, yeah, please. yeah, yeah, exactly. I've got, I've got yeah. so much work to do, and I've got yeah. so many of these to evaluate. Yeah. Like, please make my job as easy as you can. You know, try. I've okay. got a set of criteria I need to evaluate proposals or people against, and I've, and I, if you write, you know, like you said, your paragraphs in a way that, here's how I addressed criteria A. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like you've just made my job a thousand times easier. Now I can like I don't have to go through your text yeah. and try to dig out. How are they going to address area A? Yeah. yeah I mean, so. that, with a lot of these funders, they do provide the criteria they're going to assess it against. Yeah. So that's probably the most important piece of paper to print out. And I even put, I, I even wrote my document in use in the same order. So it is criteria A. Yeah. And now is the first, that's my that's my first that's paragraph right. or first section. Use the same titles. Yeah. Use the same uh, language. And yeah. so when the next I write my next proposal, grant proposal, fellowship. Um, It'll, it if some if I reuse some of the language if it's not successful and I write another one, the my main job will be just reordering it to the new yeah. order and and then changing the language. That's right. Because the person reviewing it, they want to do a good job. And yeah. They, and they want you to do a good job. They want yeah. you to have a strong proposal, so that they can confidently say, "Yeah, this is good. I checked it. it yeah. They ticked all the boxes." Yeah, you know, and they because they they're not they're not necessarily looking to you know no. demolish propose. I think most folks are not wired that way. Most folks yeah. want to find good stuff. They're not. But if it takes you know, them ten minutes no. to be able to tick one box, they might start get a little 
frustrated and wanting to make their life easier. Yeah, that's right. It'll be harder for them to be like a champion for your proposal if they yeah. really had to fight tooth and nail to extract the yeah. meaning from it. And that's yeah. true for papers too. You know, you have to think about your audience and you have to think about how to clearly uh, meet their needs. Yeah. And it's a communication thing. Like you've always got to know your audience. Like if yeah. you're giving a talk at a science conference or a media interview, and you, uh, once you know your audience and the re- in this case it's the reviewer, and that and they'll have another. 30 of these applications on the yeah. desk, then you, you write it for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, this could be really a similar answer, like what's something you learned about presenting? Because we end up doing a lot of presenting. Mm. I mean, what you just said about audiences is really probably the central bit about think about who you're talking yeah. to, think about where, where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. I, I've given um, what I felt were bad in, uh, bad say presentations in the past and when I look back at them I, the main thing I think is that if I jump around too much I lose my way mm. and I know the audience are losing it so I try to keep yeah. it as li- for me at least try to keep it as linear as possible that's right and keep the story simple you don't need to cram everything in there mm. it's important that they, they take your key messages away yeah. um, and they might take two or three points away so just make yeah. them clear that's and right. repeat them I heard one uh an oceanography colleague kind of uh, pointed out to me that sometimes when you see a bad talk, it's because um, that person's funder is in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that person, they're not trying to, they're not talking to you as a scientist, actually. They're talking. They're yeah. going to show a bunch of plots to show, look at all this stuff I did with your I'm money. I'm so great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so amazing. Thank you, funder. <laughs> yeah, keep, <laughs> keep throwing money my way and I'll make more of these plots <laughs> and that I can then get up in front of people and go, yeah. look at all this. <laughs> so I think that's uh, maybe cynical, but it's something to keep in mind that, yeah. you know, it, I'm sure that is in some certainly more senior presenters' minds. Is like, no, I, I need to impress yeah. the program managers and the folks who are, you know. I think that's true. But my difficult talk, the talks I've had more difficult are also those where the audience is broad, and I know that. And there's been some, you know, world experts in there, but there's also, um, you know, a, the broader community and you know, trying to um, present to both of them. You're just not going to do it. Yeah. It's you. So you just got. To, You've got to be clear on what your message is and try not to jump around too much. Yeah, for sure. And also, I think the experts in the room, they appreciate sometimes, you know, spell things out. Yeah. You know, they, they, they don't mind hearing, um, you know, spelling out CFCs or no. uh, all these other acronyms that we throw around. Just do it. So it's not going to hurt them. Yeah. It usually makes people feel smart when you talk about something and they recognize it, and they go like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It makes people feel smart. They feel yeah. like, oh, I'm on, I'm on board. I, yeah. I know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was explained to me by a, a professor um, back at, at, at when I was doing my physics master's. Uh, they gave a really nice talk, and I, I complimented them on it afterwards, and they said, yeah. well, I, I, 60% of that is stuff you all know already, and yeah. then the rest of it is a little bit of new stuff. And he's like, so that's what you do. You know, give people mostly what they already know yeah. and then add a little bit on top yeah, of that. Because yeah, yeah. you've, you've just spent the first, I don't know, half of your talk making them feel really confident and plugged in. Yeah. And then you can go, and here's a little extra layer to this cake yeah. that you can now take away with you. Yeah, don't, don't, you, you can definitely do too much in a talk. You can try to get too much across. Yeah. And uh, they're almost like, I, I really hesitate to use the word advertisements because that sounds gross, but they are... You know, you want to talk about, here's my work, and if you're interested, 
yeah. you know, let's talk or go look at the papers. That's where all the details are. You know, that you're not going to get across the full complexity of yeah. network in a 15 minute or even an hour presentation. Yeah. And everyone knows, you know, you're in the office 37 and a half hours a week. A 20 minute talk is not going to be your whole, the entirety of your knowledge in the no. subject. So just give everyone a flavor of what you're doing. Make sure it's... Uh, linear and understandable you're not jumping around and then yeah yeah and then yeah that will set up further conversations for sure that kind of brought me back around to our point about kind of training PhD students you know I would really hope that all these skills about like how to communicate effectively and how to write well and how to present well that's got to have a lot of value in the private sector depending on what you're doing right yeah. I mean that so much of that job has to those jobs have to be like communicating with the you know clients and customers and communicating with different you know, investors and things, and uh, I really don't know what I'm talking about, but there must be, you know, some of these skills must be transferable, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah. What's um, another question I stole from a different podcast is, um, um, so it's a pair of questions where, like, what's something you love about your job and also what's something you hate about mm. your job? That kind of pair. Of, That's changed. Know. So I used yeah. to love, when I first started, I used to love um, coding and running my model and doing that stuff, and I used to... Um, loathe the idea of having to write it up mm. and thinking okay now I've got to sit somewhere and I don't get to do the cool science now I've got to just write something I've already oh, done right. that I already know but now I, I <laughs> actually I find the writing up the, the more enjoyable part and I enjoy I, I love the idea of how do I, want, how do I tell this story and what's mm, the best yeah. way to do it what are the best figures to really get this message across and I, I enjoy that challenge now you know, it's, um, what's my audience how am I going to communicate that? And giving talks in the past, I used to see it as the, the, the quickest way to embarrass yourself is to give a talk. You know, you have to do it. We have to give an end of year PhD talk or something mm. and you're forced to do them as a student. But now, as you become more experienced, you get asked to do talks and it's up to you whether you say yes or no. Mm. And I, I, I look forward to them. I go, yeah, it's like this podcast. You gave me the chance to chat. So why not? It's, you know, I can, I can decide what I want to say and yeah. I, I'm not here to um, provide all the information to show I'm no, no. Um, I have this I don't but this huge knowledge of climate science but it's just a conversation and that's yeah. I guess when, when you learn that or when you start to see that it becomes um, more relaxed yeah that's right I and mean, that gets back to our first point about you know every great scientist you've ever read about was a human being yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, it's a nice who, symmetry there yeah. yeah yeah who had to take you know baths and showers and had to like <laughs> feed themselves yeah. and like you know I mean eating is weird right like I, I get weirded out sometimes thinking about people eating but like <laughs> like you take some food like some mushy something and yeah we, we grind it up with these bones sticking out of our mouth and then we'd like it's gross. It's disgusting. The whole well, process. Well, now it is, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> ready for lunch? That's what I'm thinking about now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost right. lunchtime, so we're not... Yeah. But, um, but I, I think, you know, even the, the... You know, Einstein did that. Like, yeah, even the yeah. most you know, mean. brilliant, you know, minds. And we should absolutely celebrate those things. You know, this isn't yeah, to detract yeah. from how awesome that is, and I think it's amazing, but it, and I, I really like the idea of, um, you know... And, you can take the approach where you you try to kind of elevate people to these almost like godlike yeah. <laughs> statuses, and that's that's one way to do it. But the other side of the picture is like, no, we're all people, and we we all can do some of this. We can all, you know, not everybody has the same access to their community and the resources mm -hmm. that we are doing. But the science thing we're doing is a human activity that we're driving forward just by mm. you know thinking about stuff and asking questions, and that's something that you know kids are really good at. Kids are really good at like. 
you know, asking questions and, and playing to get back to the fr- one another thing we started with yeah. early, you know, and that's that's kind of what we're doing. We're kids playing around, yeah, trying to understand how the system works. And that's yeah. I think the why again going back to something we said earlier, um, why one year contracts don't work. You need time to play with your data. Yeah. You need to be able to stand back, relax a bit, and not be worried about where your next job's going to come from and think, what's this data showing me? What's yeah. what are these patterns here? I'm going to just take couple of days to look at this strange little pattern over here that's where the discoveries are made yeah and squeezing um positions into yeah one year positions where we expect a paper at the end of it and you've all, oh by the way you've also got to think about applying for your next job why not think about a fellowship as well oh and you know you might need to eat and sleep in that time as well as soon as you show up all of that you have to do all of that basically right away yeah you know, as soon as you show up which is insane um yeah you know in, in terms of that you're talking about creativity, right? The the looking at a system and just seeing what pops out of it. Yeah. You can't you can't force that. That has to happen naturally. Oh, yeah, you, know, you have to think hard about something and then go away, and almost let it kind of happen subconsciously, yeah. and then things will start to percolate, and structures and ideas and narratives will start to percolate in your in your mind. And it's almost better sometimes to like just go into town and sit and you know read a book, yeah. or you know it's almost better to just be in a coffee shop and yeah. you know and, and let your mind wander and play like you said that that's just an important part of creativity that if you don't do that you're kind of sunk that's not gonna yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, conferences the i think the important part of a conference is always um tea and coffee after you know afterwards the way you get to just relax and talk or you know drinks reception or something that's where um, the thoughts and ideas flow which lead on to all sorts of things I mean we had no idea what we were going to talk about yeah. well at least I didn't yeah. <laughs> when we started this and it's no, yeah. it's just the free natural uh, organic way of that's right exp- yeah. um, navigating um, climate thoughts or thoughts and sounds yeah but that's a creative like making a conversation is a creative exercise as well I mean I had some stuff written down but this was not an agenda this was not like yeah, no, then we will do this I've it was, heard some of your other podcasts yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. This was more like if I get stuck, just let me. I'll, yeah. I'll have a thing to look at, and I can go. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> Which is what I've, I've done a bit of that. Yeah. Um, nice. Well, I feel like we've tied up everything in a nice, nice bow. I wonder. Um, this, this is a. I wonder. Um, this might be a. Uh, an unusual question, but I wonder. Ha, have you learned anything? Like, you know, parenting is relatively new for you, and still relatively new for me too. Have you learned anything in that arena that's opened up something for you? You know, in um, in your in your like other aspects of your life. Yeah, that's something. interesting. I think um, one thing that's really made me realize is communicating things because kids have, you know, well, very young. You've got to explain everything, or you you can't just assume knowledge. Yes. You know, they, yeah. so they they at the very beginning they it's like the blank piece of paper um, and. So when I, I, I guess now I'm more um, um, patient in explaining something because mm. I have to do it every day. Like the getting at the door this morning, like why are we doing this? Why do I need to get dressed? Yes. Why am I going to nursery? And I think, well, you know, and it's rather than just fobbing off, and so I'm not going to answer you. It's it's interesting to get a narrative. Well, she's genuinely my daughter is genuinely curious. Yeah, I want yeah. to know, and it's and it's um, I see it as an opportunity for me as well to. Uh, practice that conversation with it so we're having a discussion rather than me just trying to shut it down so I, I exactly. feel um, it's given me um, 
I've learned how to breathe and think, okay, how might I answer that question and be more relaxed about it? Yes. Yeah, be relaxed. And you have to find a, a simple way to answer the, some of the questions as a parent. But by simple, simple just means how do I put it in like this, the, the cleanest kind of package I can think of to put it yeah. in. I'm not necessarily talking about getting rid of all the complexity, but yeah. just like what's the cleanest, simplest way to talk about this? And yeah. that's going to be the most effective at helping yeah. my kid understand exactly. what we're doing. I understand. So rather than this, um, answering exactly the question they've asked, but actually thinking what, what is it that they mm. want to know? And when oh, they yeah. say, why do I need to wear a coat? Because it's going to rain, they don't need to. She doesn't need to know that there's a front coming in from the Atlantic, and that's when two fronts collide that we see this increase in precipitation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just keep she, it. She just, might like that eventually, but you know, yeah. Well, I give her maybe when she's five. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bring out a, a chart, a weather chart, and we'll start <laughs> to get down to that. Why yeah. do I need to wear a coat? Because the planet's spinning. Yeah. <laughs> the planet. <laughs> <laughs> And that changes the way that the fluid, you know, that's sitting on top of it moves around. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that fluid crashes into other let's bits model of fluid. It. Let's get the, let's get the, let's get the model out. Yeah. Go and get your computer or your VR headset, and let's just work this out. That's right. Um, because of Navier Stokes. Yeah. The, well, yeah, that's that's, that's right. the end. Of, exactly. It always comes down to the Navier Stokes equations, and then argument done. That's right. Oh, but well, it's, it's Noether's theorem, right? Oh, because symmetry, because physical laws have symmetry to them, and yeah. that's where we get all of our equations from. And it's like, <laughs> because of symmetries. Yeah, that's right. That that'll be tomorrow's that's answer. Like, what do I need to work out? Symmetry. Symmetry. Yeah. I mean, symmetry of the universe. <laughs> Job done. And you sound like a crazy person, but you're actually correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that like sometimes insane ranting can sound really profound for that reason because you're like do I, maybe is there something in there is there yeah. something in this like insane ranting is it and sometimes there might be and sometimes there might not be but um yeah how are you feeling good feeling good, good? Yeah. yeah anything else you want to talk about no no I think we're, I think we're good we covered a lot yeah we're good thanks Scott thank you very much thanks, thanks for having me on there you have it my conversation with Dr. Scott Hosking from the British Antarctic Survey the um, wind energy generation paper that we talked about again is called a European Wind Generation Within a 1.5 Degree C Warmer World, and it's by Hosking and a bunch of other co-authors. Um, and it's in the Environmental Research Letters Journal, uh, the 17 May 2018 um, issue. And it's uh, part of a special collection, looks like, IPCC Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 degree C. Dr. Hosking is on Twitter, like I mentioned at the, be- at the beginning. Uh, his handle is just at Scott Hosking, so he's one of the uh, folks who can just literally have his name, which is really good. Thanks again to Dr. Hosking for his time and for chatting with me for a while. Thanks for joining us. Uh, please do keep the suggestions coming at Climate SciPod. It's late. I'm going to get some rest. Talk to you later. And thanks again for joining us. Bye-bye.